Good morning. We are starting a new sermon series today called Thrive Mode. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But each week in this series, what we're, what we're doing is inviting one of Chapel Rock's own kind of resident experts in their field uh, to come up and share some of their top tips with you on how to thrive. And today we have Dr. Mark Dobbs. Mark, would you join us up here? A clinical psychologist. Mark is going to share with us from a mental health perspective how we can thrive. Thank you, brother, for being here. Appreciate that. All right, so we're going to talk about some simple changes. I'll give you five things here. Just remember, some changes are simple and some are complex. It's complex to change your personality. It's simple to change your shoes. So these are simple changes. Here we go. First tip, turn off the news. Simple. Turn off the news, especially television news. Television news is, is designed to make you angry and anxious. The more you watch it, you will feel more angry and anxious. Read the news to stay uh, informed. Do that once a day. Don't get addicted to a Twitter feed or anything. Read your news, but turn off the television news. You will feel better. Second, get outside. Go for a walk. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my wife and I, Cheryl, we started walking. We would walk about an hour a day. We call them our sanity walks. We go out and talk about everything, and while we're walking, we, will just, we just observe the beautiful trees, the pond that's in our neighborhood, the sky. When it gets dark, we put on, uh, grab a flashlight, and we see the stars. Get out and walk and observe God's created beauty. God's beauty is his antidote for suffering. He speaks through it. Get outside. Third, re-engage in positive socialization. Get together with friends that you know and love. Get into your small groups, your life groups. Do these regularly. And when the topics become political, when they become divisive or angry, gently steer them towards other things. Keep those groups positive. Uh, read uh, Philippians 4.8 before you get into those groups. Next tip, get some sleep. Get some sleep. Sleep is the foundation for mental and cognitive health. A lot of people come into my office and they're worried that they have a dementia or Alzheimer's and most of them simply don't sleep well. If you sleep better, you will think better and you will feel better. Simple tip. Last one, finally, this is probably the most important one. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The New Testament says this in three or four different ways, and it's essentially the same thing. At the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. He said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you as well. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When we're instructed to do this, Jesus means it. He's serious about it. Take him serious. Meditate on the words, the character, and personality of Jesus, and you'll find rest for your souls. Okay, the five tips. Turn off the news. Go for a walk. Have good social friends. Get some sleep. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Each, each week, we're going to provide uh, for you just some, some tips on ways for you to thrive. This sermon series is called Thrive Mode. 
Now we'll talk about why here in a little bit. One of the reasons that I think has, at least has motivated me recently to think about this is that for the last several weeks, our church has been praying for uh, two little ones who were born prematurely. Um, Lauren Swank, daughter of Jared and Carissa, granddaughter of Jean and Dana Witten, and Hank Geisting, son of John and Danielle, and grandson of Alan and Patty Voiles. So that's two. I'm, I'm going to ask you to add a third one to your prayer list. Benjamin Phelps, son of David and Ashley Phelps, grandson of Ron and Jane Phelps. He was born just this past week at 31 weeks along. So our church now has three babies connected to Chapel Rock that were all born prematurely. We're, we're praying for these little ones to grow, first of all, to live, right? But also to grow and, and, and be strong and healthy and to thrive. I mention it today because it, it relates to what we're talking about, but also just to keep that front and center in your prayer life. So I want to take a moment and, and pray for them. Also, uh, Gordon Shedd passed away. Many of you would know Gordon, so please be in prayer uh, for Sandy as she grieves the loss of her husband, and we'll have more information for you in coming weeks about his services. But let's take a moment and just pray together today. God, thank you for the chance we have to be together uh, this morning. Thank you that we can gather in freedom and peace and safety and, and, and worship you at the top of our lungs uh, we just pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, God, that, that don't have that privilege. We want to lift up, uh, Lord, the, the Swank family and the Geisting family and the Phelps family to you. As all three have, have babies that were uh, born before they were due uh, and grateful, God, to live where we do, when we do, that there's good treatment available. But we pray that those little ones would grow and be healthy and strong and that they would thrive. And we pray, God, for Sandy as, as she grieves the loss of her husband of many years. Um, we pray, God, that, that even though there is grief, it is grief with hope. And we're grateful for Gordon's faith and just ask your blessing uh, on Sandy and on, on their family uh, this week. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. In the medical community, there's a condition known as failure to thrive. According to Johns Hopkins University Hospital, failure to thrive is when a child's weight or height or weight gain is significantly below that of other children of similar age and sex. Infants or children that fail to thrive seem to be dramatically smaller or shorter than other children of the same age. And the medical journal that I pulled that from went on to list all the different factors that could contribute to a failure to thrive diagnosis. And basically they either contributed to like genetic stuff or environmental. You know, the baby's just malnourished. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why. All of them ultimately came down to the idea that the kid might not inherit all the goodness that they could possibly get from mom and dad. That, that, that there was potential that was unreached. There was something good could have happened, but it didn't. That's where they really all kind of land. I don't want that to happen for you. Physically, certainly, but also spiritually and emotionally, psychologically. I want you to thrive, and I think God wants that for you too, and so we're gonna talk about that. Thanks for being here today. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Like we mentioned before, fill out your connection card uh, and, and let us know about that, and if you can help uh, Matt Cutler become Dr. Matt Cutler, there's a kiosk in the lobby uh, to do that if you're able to help. There's information in your bulletin there. While you're doing that, if you haven't already, uh, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 14, verse one. We don't often turn to Numbers, um, some people said, like, God, God doesn't care what your church runs on Sunday morning. There's literally a whole book called Numbers. Uh, so turn to Numbers 14.1. We're going to look at that today, starting this new series called Thrive Mode. This series really was born out of the same uh, desire that caused us to invite comedian Mike Goodwin to be with us a few weeks ago. 
The last two and a half years have been really hard. And, and it's just, it's really born out of a pastoral concern that I have that, that our church, that, that people that are, are connected to Chapel Rock might be stuck in survival mode. That's, that's not what God wants for you. And there, there have been some waypoints over the last couple of years, and I think this word gets overused, but I, I don't think I'm, I'm using it lightly here, that there have been a lot of trauma over the last couple of years. And those things just stack up. They just add up over time, week after week, month after month, year after year, and we get stuck in survival mode. And it's been said before, and I think it's true that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. I think that's true. Maybe you've heard me say that at Chapel Rock, it's okay to be not okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's okay to be not okay, it's not okay to stay that way. Wallowing in your brokenness is not God's will for you. That's not what he wants. He wants you to be whole. And an inescapable facet of wholeness is thriving. And I just have this concern that after two and a half years of trauma, the the church of Jesus, in America at least, is suffering from a failure to thrive diagnosis. And I don't think that's what God wants for us. So this series is designed to help us switch out of survival mode and into thrive mode. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the the people of Israel's experience coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt and entering into the promised land. As God is trying to teach his people, here's how you thrive, here's how you grow, here's how you flourish. Step one in that process is that you have to choose to do it. You have to choose to thrive. So let me give you a little background on the story because we're really jumping in right in mid-story here. We're going to pick up the story shortly after the Hebrew people have come out of slavery in Egypt, right? For 400 years, they've been slaves. They've come out, they have Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, right? They they have kind of some some early struggles in the wilderness, but they're really moving on their way. They're making camp and they're progressing toward the Holy Land, the Promised Land, the land God promised Abraham that he would give his descendants, and they're perched right on the edge of it. And, and they decide to send out spies in Numbers 13. And they, they send out 12 spies. And part of that, that group is Joshua, Caleb's helper, or uh, Moses' helper, and Caleb, right? And they, they send these two guys. 12 of them go out to spy out the land. They're gone for a couple months. They come back. They give this report. 10 of them say, this is bad. This is bad. I mean, it's a good land, but it's bad. We can't do this. The people are big. They're scary. They got weapons. There's walls. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are like, God brought us here. We could do this. We could, come on. You know, it's like that line from, you know, Gimli in the Lord of the Rings. Ah, come on, we can take them. Like, it's this, they're excited. Do you guys remember the song from Children's Church? Some of you, yes, thank you, appreciate that. You know, yeah, exactly. We got people doing the motions, you know. Ten minutes, or twelve men went to spy on Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. Remember that? I sang that first service. Like everybody looked at me like I had horns growing out of my head. <laughs> I'm not going to do it now because that was too embarrassing. Thank you, Kyle. Um, it was awful. There's a, there's a whole song about it, right? That, that tells this story from Numbers 13. We're going to pick up the story in Numbers 14. So look at that with me, Numbers 14, starting in verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. This is after the report from the spies. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt 
or in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. Remember, I've told you before, in the Bible, that's a sign of anguish and grief. When, when someone tears their, and they didn't, like, strip down. It's just, you just rip the, the hem of the shirt. And it's just, it's a sign of, of grief, right? They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, can you imagine being the two people out of your whole country that think something's a good idea? That's weird. That's hard. They said, the land we passed through is ex- and explored is exceedingly good. We're gonna come back to that word good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That was a phrase from the ancient world. Israel wasn't the only one that used it. Other people in the ancient world used that phrase to describe some, this, it's just, it's just good all the way around. It's just good. Everything's good. He will flow in with milk and honey and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Now look at this. Look, look, look. Their protection is gone. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean that like all of a sudden their swords fell apart? Or that the walls of the city came down? Well, not until Joshua marched around Jericho a few times. No, they were still there. What's he talking about? God, 400 years earlier, God told Abraham, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When that time comes, they will have no protection. I'm gonna give this land to your descendants. Joshua is claiming a promise that God made 400 years earlier. The protection is gone. God, God held, up, held us off for a while, but he's not gonna do it anymore. The protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. That'll get your attention. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? We're gonna come back to that word. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you, Moses, into a a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, pause right there. Do you see all caps? When you're reading your Old Testament and you see all cap, the word Lord in all caps, that's the translators telling you that that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Moses is appealing to his covenant with Yahweh right here. He's saying, God, you made a promise to us. You bound yourself to us as our God. We bound ourselves to you at Sinai as your people. He's, he's, he's leaning into God's covenant relationship with them. He says that, that these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to the death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. He's going back to something that God told him about his own character back in Exodus 20 right there. 
Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of this people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So Moses intercedes for them. He's he's their mediator here. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times. And if we were to have a lot more time today, we could go back and track out, and yes, there are about 10 times in, in the story leading up to this where they tested God. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Later in the chapter, it's everybody over the age of 20 is gonna die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. Not one who has treated me with contempt, there's that word again, will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Now the passage goes on from there to describe the people's realization that, oh, they realize, oh no, we've sinned, we did wrong. And okay, well, God, we'll do it this time. We'll do it now. And they try to go up in their own power. They try to go up without the Lord's presence and they get thumped. We'll look at that in a little while. Where I want to camp out is this statement about Caleb. It says, he followed God wholeheartedly. The word translated wholeheartedly in Numbers 14, 24, it's a compound word made up of the verb to fill and the preposition to come behind or come after something. What that's telling you is that Caleb is full on following after God. He was filled up with following and pursuing God. God's will was his only pursuit. He was completely focused on that. And one of the most significant things about Caleb is about half of the time that he's mentioned in the Bible, there's this statement about him following God wholeheartedly. It's not every time, but about half of the times he's mentioned, there's this, this, that's kind of the attribute put with him. That he followed God with his whole heart. He was just full on after following God. And I love that description of him. And because of that, he was allowed to inherit almost alone in his generation, right? Because we'll read later, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and he smacked it and God let him not even go into Israel, the the promised land. So it's Joshua and Caleb, probably in their families, that's it. Like alone among their whole generation are allowed to enter in and receive what God promised. And, be, and he thrived. If when you go and you read the rest of Caleb's story, like he gets given a city with springs of water and he is just, he kind of sets up this, I mean, he becomes like the regional governor. He, God just blesses this guy incredibly. And that's today's big idea. In order to thrive, we ha- must choose wholehearted pursuit of the Lord and his will for our lives. If you want to thrive, you have to choose this. Thriving is a choice. And I'm going to urge you today to choose it. Now this choice, this single choice, is really made up of two component pieces, right? Here's the first piece of choosing to thrive. You have to choose obedience over contempt. You have to choose obedience over contempt. One of the most important interpretive keys to understanding this passage is in verse 11, when it says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long are they gonna do this, Moses? Can you just hear God's heart break as he says this? I mean, he's done so much for these people. He's brought them through so much. 
And he says, they're treating me with contempt. Now, you need to understand what he means by that word. It's significant. It means, it refers to an action or an attitude that shows scorn or disdain towards someone that you used to love and respect. There is kind of an understanding in the word. It's not just the attitude. It's know that there's a, it's a change of attitude. That it used to be one way, but now it's this way. Later in verse 19, when Moses appeals to God to forgive the people's contemptuous disobedience, <laughs> he, he uses a word. It's the Hebrew, maybe you've heard me say this before. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It generally gets translated by the NIV, unfailing love. But what it means is it's covenant loyalty and love. It's that whole concept. Chesed is the idea of God's loyal love, that God is loyal. He's faithful to you even when you're not faithful to him. We see this in the Israel story over and over and over and over and over again. That God is faithful even when they're not. And so Moses appeals to God's chesed, his covenant loyalty, right? It's the way that a healthy marriage should function. And, and, and the people reject that, and instead they, they treat God with utter contempt. It's the only word for it, to disdain someone that they used to love and respect. Now, church, here's the application for us. A flat refusal to embrace the future that God wants to write for you because you can't see how he's going to deliver on that is a grievous sin. As you go through your life and you hear the promises of God and you understand that God has said he's going to do something and you're like, I don't see how he can do that and you act in a way that that is disobedient because you can't see in your puny little brain how God could ever fulfill that promise, that is contempt for God. And it is a grievous sin. And I am warning you, just like Moses did to the Israelites, do not do that. That is the opposite of thriving. Part of choosing to thrive is is saying, even when you don't understand how God can make good on his promise to follow him, to say, yes, Lord, okay, to choose obedience over contempt. You see, God's glory, to which Moses appeals in the text, is dependent on him being able to follow through with his plans. It literally comes with the job description. Like God being able to do what he said he's gonna do is literally part of the job description of being God. And God will see his plan through even if you wanna opt out of it. Okay, fine. He says to Moses, I'll use somebody else. I'll use you. And Moses forestalls that. He said, no, Lord, you know, you said you'd do this. Your glory among the nations depends on it. Israel's sin was one of contempt. I mean, he, he forgave them. He didn't immediately wipe them off the face of the earth. He had every right to do it after everything he'd done for them. I mean, God, think about it. God delivered them in about the most spectacular way possible. Think about everything that these people had seen. They'd seen God come down in glory on Mount Sinai. They literally heard his voice. They saw him provide supernaturally manna and quail in the wilderness. They'd literally walk through the Red Sea, walls of water on every side, and as soon as they got across and the Egyptians are falling, ploosh, God just drowned them all. Awesome, awesome stuff. And they get to the edge and they see some big, tall people and they're like, let's go back. It's like that Far Side commercial you know, cartoon, God's got his finger over the smite button, you know, like, Ugh, what's wrong with you folks? 
because they're choosing contempt over obedience. And sometimes I think we make the same choice. Our, cho- our, our choices can have their eternal consequences forgiven, yes. We still may have to bear the earthly consequence of those things. Were these people forgiven by God? He says he forgave them. They still had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And sometimes, church, we make choices, sometimes even in contempt of God's will. And it, are we forgiven? Yes. Are we allowed to enter heaven? Yes. Will you have to bear the consequence of your sin? Also, yes. He'll take away the guilt, but you may have to deal with the earthly consequence of it. And sometimes, sometimes, church, it's not even you bearing the consequence, it's your children or your grandchildren. Now, our grandchildren and our children and grandchildren can also inherit blessings from good choices that we make. You know, grandpa was really smart with his money. Sometimes that can benefit grandkids. But they may also have to bear the the weight, Not, not the guilt, not the guilt, but the consequences, the effects of their parents' and grandparents' sin. Because I can't help but wonder if there were some kids in the nation of Israel when they said, yeah, we're not going in, we're, we're, we're gonna, we wanna go back to Egypt. You know that there were some 18-year-olds going, oh, mom and dad, come on. We can, come on, let's go. Is it, can you imagine being an 18-year-old Israelite and thinking that going back to Egypt is a bad idea? God says you're gonna wander till this entire generation is dead. You're perched on the edge of a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're 18 years old. And yeah, you get to go in, but not till you're 58. I'd be about ready to explode. Let me give you another example. Many years ago, there was a man named Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. Max didn't think much of Christianity. He married a girl of similar character. This is a long time ago. They did studies on their family and the kids born from that marriage. 709 people they studied. It was found that 300 of them died young, 280 died in abject poverty, 140 did time in the state penitentiary, hundreds of them were addicts and drunks, 60 were thieves, 50 were prostitutes, only 20 out of 709 ever learned a legitimate trade, and 10 of the 20 learned it in jail. And over time, that one family cost the state of New York almost $3 million. By way of contrast, Jonathan Edwards was a Christian, put a high priority on the words of Jesus. He married a girl of similar character, and so the researchers also studied the 1,394 members of their family, their descendants. Of this family, 100 were preachers, seminary professors, or missionaries. 75 were army or navy officers. Over 100 were college professors. 60 were doctors. 13 were university presidents. 60 had written good books. Three were U.S. senators. And one even became the vice president of the United States of America. Choices have consequences. And thriving is a choice. You have to decide that you want to do that. And you have to to choose obedience over contempt. And when you do that, you will discover that God has blessings he can pour out in your life that you didn't even realize. Don't don't delay, he might, don't, don't delay that. Choose that today. So that's the first part of the choice. Here's the second. You need to choose humility over arrogance. 
Choose humility over arrogance. There, there are a couple ideas that come into play here. One of them has to do with the grumbling of the Israelites. Did you notice that? They grumbled. This happens a lot. We see it uh, most, most concentrated uh, in the wilderness narratives in Exodus 15 through 17 and Numbers 14 through 17. It's this, it's, just, it's this hostile complaining. That's the best way to describe the word translated grumbling. Hostile complaining. And again, it's one of those things, you think of all the stuff that this generation saw, all that God did, and he says, all right, let's go, here we go, we're right at the edge of the land, let's go, and they're all in the back going, can you believe this, this is, this is outrageous, I'm not doing this, this is the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. The point is that God's people, who have been amazingly rescued from slavery, <laughs> The fact that they would have any legitimate complaint against him is galling in the extreme for its lack of humility. And their pride goes even further. When the people show contempt for God's plan to bring them to this good land, and the word that's translated good there is the Hebrew word tov. T-O-B is how you'd spell it. And it's, it's the word that gets used in the creation narrative. That God created this, he saw that it was tov. It was good. It, it, so this is not subjective goodness. This is not like, it's good because I think it's good, or it's good because I like it. No, it's objectively good. God said it's good. It's a good land. And so when God wants to give them this good thing, this objectively good thing, and they're like, no, no, I'm scared. I don't want to do that, Lord. <laughs> when that happens, the text tells us Moses and Aaron hit the dirt. They humble themselves immediately because they know what's coming. They've been down this road before. Later in the chapter, the people arrogantly assume that having heard God's judgment on them that for their lack of faith, they can go ahead and, you know, obey on their own time, right? In their own way. And they say, we're going to go up and, we're gonna, okay, we'll do what God said. We'll, we don't want to wander for 40 years. We'll do what God said. And then we read this in Numbers 14, 41. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies for the Amalekites and Canaanites face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you. And you'll fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country. Though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, that's symbolic for God's presence through this conquest narrative, moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah, which is a play on words. It means defeat. Before that, though, before that happens, Moses humbles himself. He intercedes for the people. He forestalls God's judgment, pleads with God not to destroy them. Out, out of a humble concern for God's glory, right? His reputation among the nation. See, God's reputation among the nations is based on his ability to make good his promises. And so church, I mean, part of the application for us is when we act in a way that would suggest that God cannot make good on his promises, we demean the glory of God among the pagans. He will not tolerate that. And so that's why it's so vital for us to, to choose humility over arrogance. We, who do you think you are to know better than God how you should live your life? When I read these narratives of Israel and, and they're like, oh, no, we know better. I'm going, do you have a clue what's going on around you? 
God's reputation depends on him being able to give his people everything he promised. And so what that requires from us is a choice to humbly accept that God is always right even when it doesn't make sense. Church, sometimes God tells us to do things that our culture says, that doesn't make sense at all. Why are you doing that? I want you to know it's perfectly acceptable for you to say, because God said so. That, that literally is the end of the discussion. God said, I have to. <laughs> That's choosing humility over arrogance and submitting your life even when you don't understand. Even when, why does God say that we should do fill in the blank? Because he wants you to be different than the people you're around? That was his whole purpose for Israel. They were different than, than the pagan nations they were going to dispossess. Because if God really is who he says he is, and we've got every reason to think so, if God really is God, the only choice that makes sense is humility. That's why pride and arrogance is such a grievous sin. That's why it's always listed first among the seven deadly sins. Let me give you an example. About 70 years ago, um, there were two brothers named Carl and Theo. Um, they had just got done serving in World War II uh, for the other side. <clears throat> uh, they were from Germany. And they took over their family's grocery store in the bombed-out industrial city of Essen, Germany, northwest Germany. So West Germany. Remember, you know, it's split down the middle. And you got East Germany, it went communist. West Germany went democratic. So this is West Germany. Back then, you know, coming out of the war with the Marshall Plan, all they were able to do, they were, they were able to offer about 250 items in their store. And just staples, flour, salt, butter, you know, meat. I mean, there, there wasn't much. 250 things. That's it. It was really, really, really simple. And, and for, you know, 15, 20 years or so, that was about all you could do. But then in the 60s, as West Germany really began to thrive economically, and they became a manufacturing hub for Europe, which continues to this day. It's the wealthiest nation, in, you know, Germany today is the wealthiest nation in Europe. As that began to happen in the, in the 60s, that you get all these big, glitzy, glam, super, you know, grocery stores coming in, modeled after American shopping centers. And all these big grocery stores come in and these brothers have a choice to make. Are we gonna compete with that or are we gonna do our thing? Because they had leaned into just, just the staples, just what you need, really, really simple, really humble. And they made a choice. We're gonna just stay on that track. This, this has worked for us. Our stores have grown. We're just gonna keep offering what people need at a good price and just be simple. In September 2017, the Wall Street Journal noted the remarkable success of the grocery store started by brothers Carl and Theo. It's a store you know. It's called Aldi. Anybody here ever shop at Aldi? Scott family's there every week. <laughs> you know, you think about those stores, right? Barely adequate lighting bouncing off brown tile floors. The shelves are filled with car simple cardboard boxes. You bag your own groceries, right? They don't even trust you with the cart. Like, you gotta put a quarter in it just to get the cart to shop with. And nothing super about that store, but they have made billions from spoiled American shoppers. There's not many choices. What they have is good, and it's a good price. By offer, they offer way less and way humbler choices than their competitors, and it has worked. 
One simple suburban grocery store has now become the, one of the biggest retail groups in the world with more than 10,000 locations, businesses in 18 countries, and annual revenues approaching $83 billion. What's the secret? Humility, simplicity. See, I, we'd like to believe that we would have chosen to go with Caleb and Joshua. Would we? Really? <laughs> I don't know. Because I see people making the same choice Israel did. That what God says is scary and it's hard and I don't understand how he could deliver on it so I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. Because it, it was awful but at least I understand it. And I am urging you today not to make that choice. Thriving is a choice. A time is coming, I believe, and indeed already is here, when the church of Jesus Christ will increasingly need to go against the flow of culture. And what was true for Israel at the edge of the promised land in 1400 BC is no less true for the church of Jesus Christ in America in the 21st century. God was calling Israel to thrive to flourish by worshiping him and him alone through putting him first in every area of their lives. And I believe that God is calling us to thrive in the same way today, church. To choose obedience over contempt. To choose humility over arrogance even when it seems like a suicide mission to the world around us. You know why that's true? Because Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. <laughs> when you picked up a cross in the ancient world, you're dead. And Jesus called, to the world looked at the mission uh, that Israel had, and Israel looked at the mission that God was gonna give him. He said, that's crazy, it's suicide. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Jesus calls you to to die to yourself in obedience and humility. Well, why would he do that? Because that's how he lived his life. Jesus made the same choice he's asking you to make. But he died for it. I know. That's the point. He calls us to die to ourselves. This story in Numbers 14 is referenced at least four times in your New Testament. In Acts 7, in 1 Corinthians 10, in Hebrews 3, and in Jude 5. And every single time, it's a warning to God's people not to turn away from the one who saved them. The passage in Hebrews specifically urges you to make that choice today. Today is the day that you should make that choice. See, Moses didn't write this for his generation. He wrote it for the next one. <laughs> he wrote it for the generation that would come after him. And I guess I would say to you young people here in the room, a time is coming, and indeed now is, when you're gonna have to flow against culture in ways I didn't have to, in ways your parents and grandparents didn't have to. And I am urging you to choose to thrive by God's grace in obedience and humility. See, that's a choice. And you can accelerate it by being obedient and humble, you can delay it by being contemptuous and arrogant. Here's the message today. God's plan to save us through Jesus was the same, same plan. 
It, it's hard, it's scary, and he went anyway. And he's calling you to into that life with him this morning. See, this is where the story turns for us. Because God's son Jesus chose obedience and humility before the Father, we are, by God's grace, allowed to inherit life, to thrive. And I'm asking you to make the same choice. Maybe today, you're recognizing some places of contempt or arrogance in your life toward God. And, and we're, in just a second, when we sing together, you may need to just take a moment and pray and silence your voice in song and raise your voice in prayer and repent of that. Maybe you'd like us to pray with you about that. We'd be happy to do that, or if you have another need, we'd love to come alongside you in prayer. Maybe today you need to make that choice to thrive, to enter into everything God has promised. He has promised you life and life abundantly. (laughs) But you need to accept him. You need to die to yourself in confession of his lordship and baptism and allow him to raise you to new life. And you've got an opportunity to do that. We're gonna stand and sing. And if you're ready to make that decision, you come while we sing together. Let's stand.